Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, it's Herd Tell Show. February the 1st, second month of the year of our Lord, 2022 already. Hard to believe. And yet here it is. It's February, folks. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street around the world. Thank you for taking the time to start your February with us. We sure do appreciate it, whether you're watching on the YouTube channel or on any of the podcasting platforms or on the Big Talker FM out of Wilmington, our radio affiliate. Uh, their listen live tab, their app, the Facebook page. If you want to listen, just put in Big Talker FM. It'll come right up for you. Great to have you with us. It's going to be a two for Tuesday. We have two guests, uh, Eric Medlin, our friend, sometimes Ordinary Times contributor. Uh, he's a history professor. Uh, he, he's going to talk about third parties. It's an election year. Every time we have an election, somebody starts caterwauling about third parties. He's going to do what we do on this program a lot. We're going to take something we hear about all the time. We're going to put a little historical perspective on it. So the historical perspective on third parties, when they have worked, their history in the U.S., and why they probably aren't going to get traction in the United States of America anytime soon. Second topic and second guest, excited about this one, uh, Cassandra Shand, another Young Voices contributor. We're going to talk about Russia. We're going to talk about Ukraine. She's going to have an angle on it that I hadn't thought much about, but she'll lay out for you. You also got to talk about China when you're talking about Russia and Ukraine. Of course, NATO's involved. We're involved. A uh, very tense situation. We've been covering it. Going to continue to cover it. And Cassandra Shand from Young Voices is going to be a guest, too. So a two for Tuesday, two guests today. Going to cover a lot of ground on two very important topics. Also going to end the show uh, on a bit of a side note. Uh, Howard Hessman has died. He was on WKRP in Cincinnati. Ties into how we open each and every Herd Tell. We'll get to that in a little bit. But first, uh, you might have heard tell about this story coming out of New York. Uh, Cheesley Chris died. If you don't know who she is, she was Miss USA only in 2019, not that long ago. She was only 30 years old. Beautiful woman, talented woman. Uh, was working for the TV show Extra as a correspondent, very media savvy was a lawyer in her own right, an attorney, uh, also had an MBA from Wake Forest, impressive resume, impressive life, and by all accounts, although it's still being investigated, committed suicide. Now, why are we talking about suicide on a culture and politics podcast? Well, we've always done this from the beginning. One of the earliest podcasts we ever did for her tell was with Dr. Katie Gordon uh, talking mental health. We're going to talk about mental health on this program because your politics our culture, our society, none of those things work if we're not mentally well, if we don't take care of our own mental health, if we don't remove the stigma so that we can help others that need help with their mental health. The thing about mental health and people who struggle with their mental health is 
these have blast radiuses. These are things that tear up families. They tear up communities. They overrun healthcare providers. Uh, they affect the criminal justice system. How many people do we have in our prisons? How many people do we have in the criminal justice system right now that, yes, they committed a crime, but there was a mental health component that probably could have been handled a different way than through the penal system, which is overcrowded. Are we really helping people the way they need to be helped to be rehabilitated? I understand they still have to pay for their crime, but is there a mental health component to a lot of those people? A lot of research, a lot of studies think so. And in our politics, think about it this way. There's no way that people are not taking out their own issues through their politics. It just has to be so when you look at the vitriol and the anger and the projection, the way people avatar, we call it here, where they just take somebody and make them a proxy for everything about them. We are not, as a country, doing very well with mental health. And suicide is a terrible, terrible thing. One person on social media whose name we will withhold because we don't have their permission, this was a personal story, put it very bluntly, very brutally and searingly when they said it this way. Uh, my father committed suicide with a gun. He fired one bullet that managed to hit every member of our family. This stuff has a blast radius. It affects everything. We need to talk about mental health, even on a culture and politics podcast, because culture and politics are both about the same thing. It's about people. Culture is how people behave and interact with each other. Politics is about how they try to govern and maintain and control each other. If we do not have good mental health, we can't take care of each other. If we can't take care of each other, we sure aren't going to be doing a very good job of taking care of ourselves. Mental health is important to talk about. We need to take the stigma away and let folks talk about it. It's okay to have feelings. It's okay to struggle. When somebody like a former Miss USA who was an attorney, who had an MBA, who was on television, who apparently had all the things life had to offer, and yet this still happens, it's something we should talk about. We should make it a teachable moment, and we should use it to reach out to people who, no matter how successful they are or how happy they may appear, may be struggling. Just because somebody doesn't look depressed doesn't mean they're not. We need to take inventory in our lives of ourselves and those around us to make sure that we've done everything we can to reach out to all those that can be reached and to let people know that there's always a hand up if they need it. To that extent, we're going to do what we've done back on the fourth or fifth uh, very first Heard Tells we ever did uh, when Dr. Catherine Gordon, Katie Gordon, came on. Uh, we're going to have her back on. At the end of this week, we'll be recording a long-form podcast. We hadn't done one of those in a while because we've been focusing on getting the daily show uh, dialed in where we want it. We've got it there now. We're starting to line up some guests for the Deep Dive Longer podcast. And the first one we're going to do, Dr. Katie Gordon, we're going to talk mental health. That'll be towards the end of this week. You can watch for it. But in the meantime, take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Check on each other. Make sure we're all in this together. Because in the end of it all, people is the most important part of this life. And we need to make sure we treat them preciously every single life. Take care of yourselves, take care of your families, and that'll make a better community, a better nation, and a better world. We're going to keep talking about mental health here on Hertel because it's that important. Because we don't want to lose a single one of you to something like just not having somebody to turn to when you really, really need help. We're going to talk to normal culture and politics next. Two great guests today, a little different program. 
but it's worth our time. We're going to delve into some important topics with them. More Heard Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. All right, let's do some history and use that to talk about politics. Now it's something we love to do. A buddy of ours, he's a contributor at Ordinary-Times.com. He is a history professor, so we have to mind our P's and Q's today. Uh, Eric Mendelin, how are you, sir? Doing fantastic. How are you doing, Andrew? Good. Good to have you, buddy. Good to talk to you on this format. We've had you on the old radio show. Hadn't had you on this one yet. Uh, you were writing in Ordinary-Times.com about something that comes up every election year. We're in an election here. I don't know if you heard, uh, but <laughs> const- yeah, constantly people are always braying and crying about third parties. You wrote about it in Ordinary-Times.com, but you took a different angle on it because you went back and oversaw the history of third parties and the fact that this is a very, very old idea and the fact that it doesn't get any traction nowadays is kind of in line with the history of third parties in America. Yes, I think that there's this there's this misconception that earlier periods were not aware of certain concepts about third parties, the most important being that, you know, the idea of the third party spoiler, if I vote for the third party, then the party that I kind of sort of like more might lose because it, the, the, the Ralph Nader effect type thing. And it's almost like People think that this idea was invented in 2000, but from the very beginning of political parties, people knew that. And the idea of the spoiler was a concern and has always been a concern for third parties ever since they started back in the 1830s. You could argue that they started in the 1830s with the anti-Masonic party. So my, my piece was about how third parties have emerged because they have, they play an important role in political history. Um, the Republican Party kind of sort of started as a third party. And there have been other really successful third parties in history. So my piece was about how those third parties rose, how they came to prominence, and how they affected the system, and how I don't think that's going to happen this time around. Talk about that anti-Masonic party, because that really was kind of the first outsider party this is really early on in American history, but it did set the tone for kind of outliers trying to start something and then it just kind of peters out. But that's a that's something we see all the way up through the modern era. Oh, yes. Anti-Masonic Party was basically uh, based on a conspiracy theory, based on the idea that the Masons were running the country and that you needed a new political party because more or less the two parties that were in charge at the time were, were beholden to Masonic interests. And that's the theme that you see a lot with these third parties. Both parties that are, that are in existence, they're usually two parties in American history, both parties are not delivering something that the country needs, either nativism or uh, banning slavery in the territories or helping out farmers or Banning alcohol, the Prohibition Party was something that I talked about in my piece. You know, Democrats aren't banning alcohol. Republicans aren't banning alcohol. Let's form a party that's going to ban alcohol. Let's form a, form a party that's going to stop Masonic influence in American life. Let's ban a party, start a party that's going to uh, reduce immigration, things like that. You need this, this, this theme, this political project that the two parties are not are not responding to. And it's not 
I'm not happy with the political system, which we have now. Lots of people are not happy with the political system. Congress is less popular than root canals, blah, 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 blah. But you need that central theme that makes it not helpful to vote for either party. So you don't care if you're a spoiler. Yeah. And the other problem of that is if it's a single issue party, the shelf life is going to be really short because we know prohibition didn't last very long, got overturned. Um, immigration comes and goes. But if that's all your party's doing, it's probably not going to get a wider base of traction because both parties already have kind of entrenched policies on those things. These single interest parties are never going to work. And then the flip side of that coin is uh, we've seen more of a populist bend and a cry for a populist party lately, but that's not new either. That's actually pretty part and parcel to American politics, especially in the last 100 and 120 odd years. Exactly. And the populist party, that was one of my main examples of a successful party. They were successful because they took over a party that existed at the time, the Democratic Party. The Democrats found an issue and a candidate that would basically take over the populists, the silver question and William Jennings Bryan. And the populists mostly don't run a candidate in 1896 like they had planned to for the previous uh, four years. That's how, that's the, the, the trial run, the successful archetype of a successful um, third party is basically not a third party that exists for a long time. The prohibition party that you mentioned, it exists today. Uh, I looked it up and the leader's name is Phil Collins. He doesn't get that many votes every year, but he does exist and he does, uh, the, the party does try to run. I'm assuming he's not a in the air tonight, Phil Collins. We'll just no, assume it's, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, talking to Eric Medlin, a historian, a good friend of ours, good writer. Here's the thing about these third parties, though. Um, people keep seeming like they want them, but we always talk on this show about turning down noise. Actions, not words. People say it, but they don't live it and they don't do it in their actions when they actually end up going to the polls. When we have had third parties, we have people that do good spoiler campaigns. Ross Perot did very well considering the environment, but that's about it. So why do people keep saying they want something when they don't turn around and vote for it? I think that's a great question. And it fuels those occasional, those occasional third party runs that you do see, you know, your John Anderson's, your Ross Perot's. But I think it's just this unhappiness with how the, the political system is is filled with you know, sand in the gears and veto points and there's a general unhappiness with how fast politics change and with how few reforms seem to happen the system is really set against significant reforms and so the easiest way is seen to be a third party. And if you have a third party that come coalesces around the idea that both parties don't work, then you can change the political system like the populists did. In 1896, they, they pushed for William Jennings Bryan. 1900, 1904, you have Teddy Roosevelt, you have all these progressive policies, you have Taft and Wilson, who are progressives, who introduce all these reforms, it can work. But you have to have that, that 
that idea where you don't care if your traditional party actually wins or loses. And a lot of people, even though they want change, they really view themselves as Democrats or Republicans. Yeah, we're talking to Eric Medlin, historian. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to delve into this third party. Uh, instead of the caterwauling about it, we're going through history and showing how this has and hasn't worked in the past, because that's probably going to be prelude to how this is going to go in the future. Some more with Eric Medlin on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're with our friend Eric Medlin. He's a historian. He's also a great writer. He's writing in Ordinary-Times.com about third parties, which everybody talks about. Um, let's just get to the nitty gritty of this thing, though. You talk about third parties. I could argue, based off the numbers, um, you talked about people in the end, they just they don't mind being Republican and Democrats enough to not be Republicans and Democrats or at least vote that way. Could I not argue that we already have a third party because... Donald Trump got record-setting uh, votes for the Republican Party in 2020. Uh, Joe Biden got record-setting votes for the Democratic Party and the overall vote counts in 2020. And then you had about a third of the country that even with all that hotness going on with the politics still said, nah, bro, I'm good and stayed home. Isn't the cycle now and the dynamic now that you really have three political parties? You have Democrats, you have Republicans, and you have the people that aren't voting. Yeah, and I think that that is the... the um the way forward for people who say they want a third party, they want to change the political system. It's really trying to appeal to those people who are not part of the system. Though that third that's not voting, you know, it's not a monolith. It's not the exact same group of people every time around. And so you pull from here and you pull from there. And that's what I think of when you hear these these narratives about, oh, the, the Democratic Party is doomed by educational polarization and they, they don't the way that the Senate is structured, they don't have a chance. I think that they really one of these days they're going to find an issue, a an approach that pulls in enough of those people who are on the sidelines, who were on the sidelines in 2016, and then they came out to vote. We're on the sidelines in 2020, and then they came out to vote. The party's eventually going to find those people and start to 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 change for the better in, I think, a way that a lot of people would be happier. Now, people look at the normal uh, way politics are going now, and they can see factions in the parties. They haven't split the parties yet. But the factions are pretty clear. You have the populist uh, Trump wing of the Republican Party and then the old moderates and the old conservatives are, are, you know, to the center of them. You have the progressive left that is getting empowered and very, very loud, but they're still electorally a small part of the larger Democratic Party. Um, we can see where the fissure lines are in the parties. It's pretty evident to anybody paying attention. But just seeing those fault lines and meaning there's going to be some kind of divorce where you get two whole more parties out of either of those groups is a whole different beast, isn't it? Because now you're not talking just ideology. You're talking mechanics. You're talking about actual the way machinations of political parties work. Talk about that divide, because the examples you give, like the Democrats being taken over by the populace in the late 1890s, they had a structure to do that. That sort of structure doesn't really exist right now. Yeah, I think that. These parties, you know, there have really only been two times that a major party in American history has collapsed. And those two times emerged from treason in the 18-teens and civil war in the 1850s. 
ever since then, these two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, have adapted and they've been forced to change and they've taken on new attributes. They've brought in new people. They've reformed themselves. The Democrats did in the 70s when the, the post-Watergate reforms were seen as this building of a new, a new Democratic Party that wasn't beholden to the, to the machines. They change when they have to. And the Democratic Party sees no desire. They, they believe that, you know, the, the more progressive wing and the more centrist wing have achieved the trifecta in government. And they had a trifecta in government about 10 years ago. You put one of these parties out of power for 10, 15, 20 years, like happened in the 1930s. I mean, if you look at how the Republican Party did in the House, between 1932 and 1994, it's exceptionally terrible. You need those kinds of changes. You need those uh, those devastating losses and those large stretches out of power to really force these parties to change because they're really around to put politicians in charge of the government. And if the politicians are not being in charge of the government, then they feel the need to really seriously change. But right now, I don't think they have. I don't think they believe that. No, they don't. And we have the numbers to prove it because Congress is the most uh, partisanly divided Congress is. Usually it's a large, these are very thin majorities. These are the thinnest majorities we've ever really seen. People forget, we talk about FDR. He had two thirds majorities, both houses at one point. It's just unthinkable now. This is going to continue to be a thing. I think even like the coming midterms, just because the Republicans take Congress, they're going to have two years of them being in power and Joe Biden's going to get a run against that. It changes that dynamics. I think just the dynamics and the polarization and how close these margins are because the country's close. I mean, it reflects the margins in the country. Does that almost take away the need of it? Because it's just such a fine margin now that nobody's going to want to step out and go, we can't afford to break off 15, 20 percent of any party at this given time. Well, the the Republican Party is convinced that if the Democratic Party wins, they're going to impose socialism and communism and make critical race theory the official uh, ideology of the United States. And the Democratic Party is convinced that if Republicans win, they're going to impose fascism. And there's really no desire to to have the other party to, to threaten the strength of one's party and to threaten the viability of one's party, even though, as you say, the majorities are so thin. And once a party gets into power with a 50 seat majority, what are they going to do? As you as as we've seen, a party with a 50 vote majority in the Senate, well, majority with the vice president, they have to make every single member happy, which means they don't pass very much. So these these uh, the voters are trying as hard as they can to put people who they support and who they like in charge, mainly so the other party is in charge. And that is not that is a recipe for the 1870s and the 1880s when every election was a rehash of the Civil War, more so than the 1890s and the 1920s where these strong third parties are coming up and they're challenging the main two parties and the main two parties are saying, hey, maybe we need to change what we're going to do right now. I don't think we believe that. Yep. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And right now we got ourselves a rap song going. Uh, Eric Medlin, our friend, our historian, uh, you also have a great local history book out. You do a lot of local history writing. Let people know where they can follow you on social media, where you're writing and about your book and such so they can find you. So uh, they can follow me at 
twitter.com slash medlinwrites. And this is my book, History of Franklin County, North Carolina. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and online. Just Google History of Franklin County, North Carolina, Eric Medlin. And he writes for us at Ordinary-Times.com. He also has a Medium page. Make sure you check that out. Follow him at both places. Good guy, good writer, good perspective. Even might need to work on his home shopping network presentation there. That wasn't super smooth. Might have to work on that. (laughs) For those of you watching on the YouTube channel, Uh, Eric Medlin, great job, buddy. Appreciate you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Take care. We'll have you back for sure. Thank you, sir. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back overseas. We've been talking a lot of Russia, a lot of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and that part of the world. Uh, turning to another one of our Young Voices partnerships, uh, Cassandra Shand. Uh, she has an impressive resume. Uh, she has been writing all over the place about different things. Uh, she studies foreign policy. Uh, she studied it at Cambridge. She liked it so much. She's now studying it even more over at the University of Chicago. She's a UCLA grad. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And me proudly representing the Summersville Extension of Glenville State College Community College. Uh, we'll try to keep up with you as best I can, as long as you promise to use small words and talk slowly. <laughs> um, let's let's back up because we have a habit, especially in American audience, especially American media. We just jump on international things when it pops on our radar and we lose the context of it. So let, let's do a little background here. Russia's uh, on the borders of Ukraine on four sides surrounding them. That didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. So let's back up a little bit. Where do you think this crisis really started? We know Putin's a thug dictator and a bad actor and all this stuff. Where did this really start? Because we know about Crimea getting invaded in 2013. We know Belarus coming into the fold a few years ago. There's a lot of moving pieces that added up to this. We know the oil and gas part of it. Where do you think the genesis of this really is at? Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, a lot of experts might point to, I mean, the Crimea invasion itself. Um, I think in the past few years, one of the big things uh, has been the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I think that kind of uh, the current administration's um, like kind of like tacit acceptance of the pipeline's creation. Um, while, I mean, while sanctions are still in place, that's kind of created a pathway for Russia to say, well, okay, um, yeah, we're going to go for it. So I think that's kind of what's um, kind of really rehashed Russia's interest in Ukraine. Yeah. And one thing we're always talking about is uh, geopolitics. You always want to start by just looking at the map. Uh, you mm-hmm. can usually get a lot of your answers that way beyond all the politics of it. Ukraine is, uh, the USSR always called it the breadbasket. It's a natural resource rich area oil and gas if you look at the map all the pipelines if you're going to get gas and stuff into uh europe have to go through the ukraine and with nordstrom too it bypasses that and go into germany and that's why that became such a big deal going through ukraine right ukraine right now is the only is kind of the only i'd say like the only real safeguard uh, ukraine has from like for open season for your uh russia russian aggression so um, I think that's why a lot of Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian government was so upset um, at Nord Stream 2. Um, and I think that um, the West, while very vocal, was not vocal enough in the past year and a half or so. Um, and I think that's why we've seen a lot of movement since at least spring of 2021. Especially when we go back to some even more uh, past history. At the end of the USSR, when Ukraine became independent, they had 
uh, nuclear weapons from the USSR that was there. There was a lot of military bases, obviously the Black Sea bases that are now back in Russian control because the Crimean Peninsula. The promise was they were going to give up their nukes and the West, especially NATO, especially Western power, especially America, we would protect them if Russia ever came calling. Here we are 30 odd years later. Here we are. And that dynamic has played out very differently, hadn't it? Absolutely. We also had the 94 Budapest Memorandum where uh, the U.S., U.K. and Russia, um, all three of us agreed on, on the Ukraine's borders. We, we agreed on UK, the Ukraine's sovereignty. Um, and here we are. So um, a few lines have been crossed for sure. Now, crossing lines, when, when we're talking about international policy, there's a big historical component. Historically speaking, when you have a, a person like Vladimir Putin, who has absolute power, who has ambitions, uh, they tend to work off learned behavior. And we have learned behavior here because he didn't get his hand smacked for 2013 in Crimea. He hasn't got his hand smacked in a meaningful way for targeting journalists and dissidents with uh, the, the poisoning and this sort of thing. How big of a piece of this puzzle when we try to understand what's going on in Ukraine is the fact that I don't think Vladimir Putin really fears any kind of international pressure right now, other than maybe some monetary stuff. Oh, I 100 percent agree with that. I think and, and, and to be fair, I don't think like the monetary stuff is anything to be taken lightly. I think if done properly, that would very much cripple Russia. I do think something new, though, uh, since 2013 is kind of a, a resurgence of Chinese interest in Ukraine. I think that, that is new in itself. And I think that Russia and China relations, they're a little tenuous and they have been for a while. So I think that that's definitely a change we've seen since 2013, uh, 2014 at least, um, and an area that I think Russia is a little apprehensive about. Talk about that. France yeah. as well. Yeah. And talk about that, because I don't think people realize because we don't pay attention in the especially mm -hmm. American media very much about these things. China's things like their Belt and Road Initiative, like their expansions, uh, the way they're using predatory lending in places like Africa. I know you've written about that before. We'll maybe get into that some other time. They're expanding. So when Putin's just looking at a map, he's like, well, wait a minute, you're expanding. But now you're getting into my backyard because he sees the Ukraine. He still has that imperial uh, mindset as an old KBG guy is like, no, wait a minute, that's mine. And there's a big element of that here too, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think very much there's a clear parallel parallel between like Russia's interest in Ukraine and China's interest in Taiwan. I think they they both view both regions um, as kind of like their their homeland, um, their brethren in some uh, in some aspect. China and Russia both have very imperialistic ambitions. I think that China is in a stronger position currently. Um, I. I don't I personally wouldn't necessarily attribute superpower status to Russia so much as it as I would have maybe about the USSR. Um, so right now I think that they both have very similar goals in mind. I think China does China has a lot of investments in Ukraine, a lot of or China is the Ukraine's largest trading partner. It's a uh, they're heavily tied. Um, Russia's aware of this, um, and, and they can't. They're kind of walking this fine line of being like, okay, great, we kind of have Russia or uh, China on our side with a uh, supporting us with the with. Crimea, but also China wants to be more invested in Ukraine and on us. So it's it's this kind of re weird uh, tug of war that I, I think uh, really puts Russia in an uncomfortable in an uncomfortable position. And so I think um, so I think areas where uh, we can kind of increase Ukraine's security. I think pitting Russia and China at each other with the Ukraine issue that's in America's best interest, which is why I think. Ukrainian sovereignty is incredibly important. As long as Ukraine exists, there's a point of hostility, clear hostility between uh, Russia and China, which plays out in America's favor. 
how much of this is economic? Because we know the territorial man, we know the we know the prestige, we know that Putin really wants that reunited USSR because he feels like it was robbed from him. This is just a lot of economics. So, like you said, the thing that really differentiates Russia and China is we kind of talk about Russia's military being a paper tiger. It's not that their military isn't capable, it's that economically their military is disproportionate to what their economy can handle. When he's looking at the Ukraine, we already talked about it being the breadbasket of the USSR. This is a huge economic piece. If Russia is going to expand influence, they just have to have those economic models. And that's where you start bumping into China because they're already in there trying to get that same amount, that same piece of real estate, for lack of a better term. Yeah, um, I think I, I think it's pretty like self-explanatory. There's only a finite amount of resources. You can't have two dominant actors after the same the same goal without having a little bit of strife. So yeah, I think that's the area where a lot could happen between the Ru- Russia and China as far as their strategic partnership goes. Um, and I think Ukraine is in the unfortunate position where they just are being kind of fought over. And so I think that's definitely underlying aspect, uh, kind of a hidden issue we have in Ukraine today that is not really discussed at all. I think there's a big focus on NATO and Russia and Ukraine and, and China is just kind of there biding time. But I think if provoked, I'm not really sure what China will do. I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what will happen behind the scenes with Russia and China. But um, I think they are definitely uh, partners of convenience. And I think if maybe Russia was a uh, over on our side of the world, it could be a different story. Is it is it one of those things where enemy of my enemy and friend of my friend thing? But is it just inevitable because they're both so? Uh, ambitious. They both have such nationalistic goals of expanding their spheres of influence. Is it just inevitable that at some point, as long as Putin's in charge, as long as Xi Jinping's in charge, at, at some point, you can't you can't have those two alphas in the same room. At some point, they're going to want to test each other, aren't they? Yeah, I think another uh, another factor at play is uh, China has a very clear historical conscience. I think that they had a, they call it the century of humiliation, Russia did very, I mean, for a short period of time, take advantage of uh, kind of China's insecurity. It was being exploited by multiple Western powers, and uh, Russia took uh, hundreds of miles of land from China, eventually give it back. But um, that's just something you definitely still see in Chinese history. It's a, a very clear, like, Russia took this from us. Yes, they we adopted communism, and we kind of um, became closer aligned with Russia. But there's still this kind of, like, deep-seated, like, anger towards past treatment. And so I think that's definitely like an aspect that's kind of in the back of a lot of um, Chinese policymakers' minds. I also think that, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The economic and the strategic kind of adversarial interests um, are definitely playing a role in how both countries are kind of positioning towards each other um, with the U.S. being the ultimate, like we don't like the U.S., um, kind of their shared common denominator there but without the u.s i mean i, I can't <laughs> i i think they'd be pretty it'd be pretty adversarial for sure more russia more ukraine how china plays into that and we're going to get a little bit into the wider world how europe and america is going to react to all that all that right after this when we come back on her tip Hi, welcome back to Hertel. We're talking to Cassandra Shand, uh, Young Voices contributor, uh, Cambridge graduate, uh, University of Chicago student, because you're a glutton for punishment and want even more learning, talking a little bit foreign policy. All right, Russia and Ukraine. I just cannot overlook the fact here, and the Western media hasn't been talking about this much. I don't think it's accidental that this is all happening right after Angela Merkel leaves the scene. She was kind of the one person in Germany that that kind of had Putin's number, would push back on him, not, not in ways that the West probably liked, but they didn't like each other. Uh, she spoke fluent Russian. She could at least hold her own on the national stage. 
no offense to Olaf Schultz, but you know he has the personality of a beige hallway in a government building somewhere. Uh, I don't think any of this is accidental, the timing that he's pushing the limits with a new president and President Biden, who he knows very, very well, a new chancellor in Germany, which is probably our most important ally in Europe. We've already talked about the China connection. There's a lot of confluence here of things that Putin's going, now's my moment to move, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think the timing could not be better for Russia. Two of the major players in the world, new leadership, uh, mixing it up a little bit, both the US and Germany, they're kind of figuring out their foreign policy again and like rehashing, especially the, the, again, the pipeline we discussed before. Um, it, it's huge for um, for Russia. And so, yeah, new leadership in Germany, absolutely major factor in um, this renewed Russian aggression. Is NATO pro- the way it's always been? It seems like we've just left NATO mostly how it's been for the last 30 some years since the wall came down. Is NATO really properly aligned to deal with a Russia as it exists now, which is no longer the Soviet Union. It's now this kind of, it's a state, it's a sovereign state, but it's also ran by oligarchs. It's ran by a dictator in Putin who represents those oligarchs. It's ran, quite frankly, kind of more like a criminal enterprise than a state at some point. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like NATO is really the proper alignment and or organization in its current state to really deal with issues like this, is it? In theory, NATO is the best prepared to deal with uh, this kind of thing without the U.S. directly um, managing itself. I mean, I, I think uh, the U.S. I think can't manage this in its entirety by itself. I think NATO is a good way of kind of walking the middle of line, the middle line of being involved in this conflict, but also not being like the direct uh, main player um, with Russia. So um, I think this time around, well, like NATO hasn't really changed much, but I think Ukraine has changed a lot more. I think that. Um, now a lot of the Ukrainian um, the military, the military is now they have wartime experience. They've been kind of like in a wartime mindset for the past eight years now. While NATO is kind of doing the same same kind of training they've done before, maybe just advancing a little more. The confluence of both of those factors kind of positions NATO and, and Ukraine in a like I'd say better positions than this time around for sure. Talk about because you study foreign policy and you study um, international policy with somebody like Putin um, saving face perceptions, especially we talked about the economy of Russia is not what it's cracked up to be. He tries to build up the military to kind of compensate for that. A lot of his moves are to try to save face. Is that one of the things that's kind of staying his hand here? Like no matter how bad he wants to invade the Ukraine, is that maybe the biggest thing is going like he knows, like I go in there, I don't think I can hold it. Uh, I'm going to have international pressure. Is it the saving face of what if the Ukrainians blunt us? Is that kind of the only thing kind of holding him here? I, I think it could kind of be perceived as both. I think um, to some degree, this could be just a Russian form of brinksmanship where, OK, like, yeah, we're going to threaten to uh, invade Ukraine uh, and then, you know, give a whole shopping list of demands like, oh, we don't want any NATO pressure. We don't want any uh no new NATO encroachment uh, towards the East, like, you know, stay in the West. Um, that could just could just be a way of Putin saying, hey, like, get out of my backyard. And, and yeah, I think that it, it probably is a reasonable fear in Putin's mind that, yes, if they do invade Ukraine and uh, Russia is in Ukraine, like, can it realistically keep control over the area? I, I don't think so. I think that um, for the most part, um, the average Ukrainian is, is by far pro-West. Um, that's the reason why we've seen such a transition of power in Ukraine of, since 1991. Um, and yeah, I think uh, Putin is aware of this fact. Um, and uh, I think we'll see what, what he decides to do. But uh, 
I think uh, the odds are against him for sure. Now, the brinksmanship line is exactly the one that Ukraine has come out with the last couple of days of President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. This is kind of the tone he's taking of don't stop talking so much. In fact, it kind of made some headlines here. Uh, The meeting with him and President Biden, depending on which report did not go particularly well. And he came out of that meeting in uh, European press saying, quit talking about an imminent invasion. This doesn't help. An invasion is not uh, a foregone conclusion. That seems to be the line he's taking here. Is that him saving face or do they really believe that, hey, we we can maybe weather this out if we just let it go for a little while longer? Um, to, to be quite frank, I'm not really sure. I think that, I mean, historically, just troop movements, they or I guess like um, off training scheduled troop movements have been um, heavily overlapped with brinksmanship. Um, so if this really is just like a repositioning of troops and they don't invade, yeah, it's brinksmanship. But I mean, I think I the real tell here is whether or not um, Russia decides to go, you know, cross the border. And um, I, I do think, I guess, that one other factor is Belarus. I think that uh, considering uh, Lukashenko is a lot more pro-Russia, it makes the brinksman, brinksmanship argument all that kind of more fragile. But um, uh, yeah, I think Zelensky is probably uh, more on the nose here with uh, Russia, kind of. See, the Belarus thing, I think, is the one that people aren't really, because it wasn't that long ago. This is only a couple of years ago. Luchinko basically stole an election. Uh, everybody outside of his circle and the backers and, and the Kremlin said he stole this election. This is one of those things when you're trying to explain foreign policy to people that certain things matter. That one really mattered because now he's a wholly owned subsidiary of Putin. And if Putin wants to drive on Kiev again, geopolitics starts with a map. All you got to do is look at look at Belarus. He can drive straight down into Kiev from the north now instead of the heavily fortified eastern border. That's one of those things that really, really mattered. And they just didn't we didn't do a lot of supporting of something that everybody admitted was clearly wrong there. Oh, yeah. No, I 100% agree. I think uh no conflict in foreign policy is isolated. Everything is related, especially when you have such uh, closely drawn borders of post-Soviet states. It definitely irks Putin on a, I think, like a on a personal level that um, you have Ukraine with all these pro-democratic sentiments. I think he really wants to go back to Yanukovych era. Uh, I was like the pre, like a pre-2014 Ukrainian president. Um, very pro-Russia. And I think it, it really kind of uh, frustrates him that the Ukrainian people have like so far heavily, heavily rebuked um, Russian influence. And I think, yeah, um, he in an ideal world, he obviously would want a uh, Ukraine that kind of operates like a uh, Lukashenko-run Belarus. Yeah, the old Soviet Union, in a lot of other words, without the pretense oh, of the communism. What's your read on Putin? He's getting up there in age. Uh, he's president for life. We he, He's figured that out. So he's never going to leave power until he dies or he gets overthrown. The former is probably going to happen before the latter. What, what's your read on him? Because when you look at the economic situation, you look at the military situation, you look at China, even with a very distracted U.S., is it fair to say that Russia's kind of bumping up against the, the limits of its expansion of how much influence and, and expansion it can have here? This, this seems like a, almost a tipping point with the current state of Russia of I don't think they can go much further in world uh, influence than what they're going here. And this may very well be the point where if Putin doesn't handle this right. He could really lose a lot of face and start to lose internal control as well, couldn't he? Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think um, there's a reason why the U.S. is pivoting towards Asia. And I also think that like uh, a uh, democratic Ukraine is kind of in Putin's favor. He can play this really, uh, okay. I really don't want the U.S., uh, the evil U.S., whatever. But in reality, like if he focuses on the Ukraine as like the as a, a real moral impetus for um, Russian aggression, I guess. Yeah, he uh, he kind of appeases his base. 
I mean, like, yeah, Russia is strong. It's a prioritizing first. It's a um, more broadly that I, I think Putin is um, a little concerned about the state of his domestic affairs um, and his um, capacity for international dominance, um, which is why I think the U.S. has quite handedly pivoted towards Russia with the uh, exception of NATO influence in Europe. I think that Putin, in many ways, like it's, it could be kind of like a Falklands thing for Putin. It's like, okay, great. Like this is our this is our sustained conflict. Um, this is really important for us. Um, and you can kind of increase domestic, uh, create more positive domestic sentiment that way. And I think for the U.S., this actually works out very well. I think we want a free, we want to keep a free um, Ukraine for as long as possible, because as long as Ukraine is there, Putin is more frustrated with the fact that Ukraine is free than the U.S. is just sitting over here and dominating. I think that's his priority is Ukraine than U.S. And I think um, the longer that Ukraine is free, the more Putin is going to try to flex his muscle around Ukraine to the benefit of the U.S. Does Putin calm down from this or does he invade, do you think? I don't think it's it's in his direct influ- interest to invade currently. I think that um, he needs to sort out a lot of different factors in the present. I think that the pipeline itself, I think the fact that it's kind of almost complete, it's very close. Um, that's go- that goes to show that, I mean, Russia is already kind of exceeding uh, I think American expectations at um, Russian success, even with sanctions. Um, so I think that, I mean, he's positioning himself very nicely um, to kind of make Ukraine, um, as, as far as like a resource, less important. And so I think he's kind of increasing the opportunity. I think uh, Russia's, I, I think the window for invasion is further down the road. I think that um, right now, the focus on the pipeline getting that complete kind of showing the rest of the world like oh look how cool we are we've got these sanctions but succeeded that would make more sense as like being like a better move for putin to make and then invade down the long term i think this most likely is a a instance of brinksmanship let me put it this way i hope you're right i hope it's a brinksmanship thing i kind of avoid the fact that he's held this long because usually if you're going to invade you invade you don't invade go to the stop line and then make sure everybody sees you're getting ready to invade and then invade Mm -hmm. that would be a weird way to do it I know some people are talking about the winter weather over there, but I, that's Russians are used to winter. I don't think that's the issue at hand. So I hope you're right that it is a brinksmanship thing. We're definitely going to be talking about it a lot in the coming weeks and months. I'm sure this is not going away. Like you said, I think he sees this as one of his uh, continuing conflict type things. Cassandra Shan, thank you so much for the time today. Let folks know where you're writing and what you're doing and how they can follow you on social media and elsewhere. Yeah, of course. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Cassandra Shan. Um, yeah, I post whatever I do there. So thank you so much. Appreciate your time. We'll definitely have you back to update the story because I don't think it's going to go away. Happy to do so. Thank you so much. And uh, happy birthday, who celebrated a birthday a day or two ago. So happy birthday. Thank you so much, Aya. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Talk to you Hold soon. It. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel. You know, the opening of this show, we worked pretty hard on that opening. We're proud of it. We really, really like it. That radio dial noise, that squeeching, searching the radio dial, if you're old enough to remember what that was like, that's a takeoff of WKRP in Cincinnati, the classic sitcom, and Dr. Johnny Fever, the DJ from that show, uh, the actor who played him, Howard Heisman, uh, died a couple of days ago over the weekend. He was 81, uh, but we wanted to end the show today marking that passage. It's a great show. Uh, I remember watching it on reruns a lot. I always loved the opening of that show where they did the radio dial and the various things and then the song about uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. So when we first started putting together the podcast, working on the opening, 
That's where we took inspiration from. We made a homage as the fancy French word for we ripped it off is. Uh, but with Howard Hessman dying, we thought it was appropriate to mark his passing. Uh, comedic genius. Very, very funny, very talented man. He's also in a TV show called Head of the Class. It was a great show. Uh, kind of became a counterculture figure. Interesting dude. So wanted to mark his passing since he left. Uh, that'll do it for her tell today. Continue to watch us on whatever platform you're on. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, we sure appreciate it. Make sure you share, like, leave comments, put us on your social media. It only costs you a click, but it means the world to us. We sure appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your continued support. And we're going to be keep doing it as long as you keep watching and or listening. So that'll do it for us, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. We hope you're well, or hope you are fed, and we'll see you tomorrow on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.